Welcome one more time to Mill City. If I haven't met you, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. Love to say hello after the service today if you have a minute. We are in a uh, teaching series called Trust Issues, and we're acknowledging that we have some trust issues and that there are also some issues related to trusting people in our lives that we want to talk about. And last week, Stephanie started a part of the conversation on whether or not we can trust the church. And so today's teaching is kind of the 2.0 version of that where we started last week. So if you didn't hear, weren't here with us, I encourage you to listen online to Stephanie's sermon last weekend. One of the most important things that Stephanie said last week, I think, was that we have to acknowledge, especially those of us who are leaders in the church, that we've done some things that have hurt people. And that if you've been in church for any period of time, because churches are made up of broken people, then you've probably experienced some hurt. And uh, as Mill City Church, we, we want to say that we're sorry about that. Whether you're part of Mill City Church or another church, uh, you've probably experienced some hurt, and that's not God's intention in churches, but it happens. And we want to acknowledge that and say that we're sorry and invite you into talking about it with us in our congregation and try to sort through what those hurts have been about. I've been in formal roles in church leadership for about 14 years. And I've been in the church my whole life before that. And so um, I can point to some things that have happened in my life that were really hurtful, that were hard to get over, that I sometimes still think about. Uh, Sometimes it's just careless comments that people make. Sometimes it's folks representing something about the church that has really nothing to do with who Jesus intends the church to be. There could be a whole long list of things, and if all of us listed the things that we have that have caused some hurt in our lives that we've experienced in churches, I'm sure it would be a really long list. Uh, And that's sad in many ways, because that's not what God intends for us. But the question of this whole conversation about trust issues has been, uh, if we acknowledge that we have trust issues, how do we not just sort of say, hey, we have trust issues? End of conversation. What do we do about it? How can we reconstruct some trust? How can we regain some trust in some of these areas that we're talking about, whether that means with God or with the Bible or with church or with leaders or with uh, other people in our lives? How do we regain trust with the church? So I'm going to try to take what Stephanie did last Sunday, kind of turn it a little bit and say, here's some ways I think we can step forward and acknowledge that while, it, while it's dangerous to trust each other in a context like this, There are some really wonderful things that can happen if we can rebuild some of our trust in church. I don't want us to be naive. I don't want us to pretend like Mill City Church is going to be the one church in America that doesn't have anybody hurt in it. But I also don't want us to be cynical to the point where we don't think the church can be better than it is right now. Right? So let's be honest, but let's be hopeful about what can happen. Um, I feel like this particular topic is something that I've been trying to figure out real intensely for the whole 14 years that I've been doing this. And I feel like it's actually the driving question for me uh, that kind of propelled me into pursuing being in pastoral leadership at all. How can the church really be what it's supposed to be? How can it not be um, a poor version 
of what God hopes for it? How can it be the best of what God created it and has in mind for it to be? And I have explored this in all sorts of contexts, really uh, different sort of non-Christian contexts, college ministry contexts. I started helping a guy who was a Texas Baptist try to plant a church a block off Princeton University's campus, which was the worst idea in church planting history, I think. I have, I have served in um, places like uh, Uptown, where the sort of assumption is that new churches go there to die. There's all of these different contexts that I feel like I've gone to to try to find out how do the criticisms that people have of the church get addressed? How could they be different? What could be great about the church? Are, are, we, are we destined to just continue to suffer the accusations of hypocrisy and failure to be the people that God has created us to be, or is there another way? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that one way to rebuild trust in the church is to start by refocusing on what the church is called to be. What is it supposed to be? What is God's vision for it? What is God's intention for it? And what potential lies in the true identity of the church? And if we start there, even if we acknowledge we're not that, we have somewhere to go. And we have something that could be trusted as we move in that direction. So I'm going to use a passage from Matthew chapter 5 today. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, open to Matthew chapter 5. It's the beginning of Jesus, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to use this text because Jesus is talking about the people of God, not, not the church very specifically, but the people of God who have been listening to him now for a little bit. And he starts making these identity statements about who the people of God are, are, who they are. Not even just who they're supposed to be, but who Jesus sees them as. And he uses these metaphors like salt and light and cities on a hill to say to a group of people who have really no idea what he's talking about. They've been following him around. They're, they're kind of misfits in a lot of ways. They're going to make a whole bunch of mistakes that we know from the story going forward. He makes these really definitive statements about who they are. And it's almost like he's breathing this life and hope into them. It's like, this is who you can be. If you choose to step into this, if you trust me and believe in me and follow me, this is who you will be. This is who you're made to be. And so I want to read this passage to you with, with that lens and invite you to think about who can, who can the church be? Who are we supposed to be? And how can we trust that? And I'm going to read it today through the, the message translation of the Bible, which is created by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who is really striving as a pastor to write the trans, to translate the Bible in ways that are in very everyday language, in very um, common language that we would use and understand. And I appreciate his translation on a number of occasions, and this is one of them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Here's what he says. Jesus is talking to this group of followers. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here, meaning why you're here on earth. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. I love that language. If you lose your saltiness, 
How will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, to bring out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. That last line there, verse 16 And the NIV says this, it's translated this way. In the same way, let your light shine before other people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Put the salt part of it up for me, will you, Adam? Very straightforward. Let me tell you why you're here. You are salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. Jesus is using these everyday, common things to illustrate for them who the people of God are called to be. You are like salt. Salt seasoning that brings flavor out. Now, salt has all kinds of great uses, right? You can preserve food. You can bring the taste out of food. You can keep an icy Minnesota road from being so slippery. I put it in there, I put it in there, and I was like, I don't know, it might be too subtle. <laughs> in history, salt has been one of the most valuable commodities. Kings have sought out salt as a status symbol, if you can believe it or not. If you have salt, you can do all kinds of things. Life is tastier, life is healthier, life is safer. That's a reference back to the joke that you didn't think was... <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. But Jesus is saying, salt that is not salty is is worthless. If it's not going to do what it's made to do, then it should be thrown out. And he's making this reference, he's using this metaphor, right, to help these people understand, this is who you are. You are salt. You are supposed to bring out the God flavors of the world. And when you don't do that, you become worthless. You lose your identity. You become not salt. How does this happen? How do the people of God, who so clearly Jesus is saying to them, even though they're just now listening to him in some new ways, how do we lose track of who we are so that our salt becomes not salt that just gets chucked into the garbage? How does that happen? Because it does happen, right? That's why a lot of us have been hurt. Because we've lost our our sense of identity and our our saltiness. I want to suggest two reasons why it happens. One, it happens because we become isolated from the world that Jesus is saying we're supposed to be interacting with. And, and two, 
uh, sometimes we blend into the world to the point where the salt's not doing anything. It's there, it's on the road, it's on your, it's on your food, but it's not accomplishing anything. What I love about this metaphor is that when Jesus is talking to these people pretty early on here in this teaching, he's saying there's no way for you to understand your identity as followers of mine without your connection to the world. There's no way for you to understand who you're supposed to be as church without understanding how church and world go together. Salt by itself, if I just had a huge jug of salt up here, right? and you didn't put it on any food or any roads or anything, what good is it? It's nothing. It's like churches who live their lives as a fortress where we're just trying to protect ourselves from the world and keep everything bad that could possibly happen to us out. And anybody who comes in can live in our little fortress until we all die and go to heaven. Jesus would say, that salt is worthless. He also says when salt loses its saltiness and just gets tossed around and doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish, it is also worthless. When the church becomes isolated from the world, let me deal with the first one first. When the church becomes isolated from the world, we hurt people. Some of us have been hurt not because someone said something dumb or because there was something much worse done by a leader or, or some of these other stories that we've been exploring in the last week. Some of us have been hurt by the church because the church has lost its saltiness. Because it became inward focused. Because it started living its life as a fortress instead of being engaged in the world that God loves. And we lose our purpose and our identity because now we're just bickering about song choices and who's bringing what to the potluck instead of what it is that God's actually wanting us to be a part of in the world that we live in. We become, we become so inward focused that all we're really worried about is the inner workings of how our church is going to try to accomplish whatever thing that we've decided to accomplish. And we all have really strong opinions about all those things and we have to try to figure out how to work it out so we're all happy. And we can spend generations doing this kind of stuff where all we're really doing is sort of fighting out how best we think we can be church with our friends in this thing that's protected from the rest of the world. And it's close to worthless. And Jesus says it goes in the garbage, which is pretty strong language. The other version of this is where the, the salt is in the world, it's on the food, it's on the street, but it's lost its saltiness to the point where no one cares if it's there or not. And the, the, uh, the opposite of being totally isolated from the world that Jesus says we have to be connected to is being irrelevant in the world that we're connected to. So for, for some of us who are, we're afraid of being influenced by the culture or the world or anything that we might intersect with, so we isolate ourselves. For others of us, we're so afraid that bringing our Christian identity to the work that we're doing in our workplace and in our neighborhoods and in our families might be offensive to someone or some person or some organization that we've basically given up being a Christian in a public space because of that fear. And your faith just becomes like a footnote that nobody really reads. Because you're going about and you're doing the same things that everyone else is doing, and you might be doing them in a slightly different way, but the only one that anybody would ever notice that is if they really dug deep to read the footnotes. And who reads the footnotes? 
Only nerd people, like PhD students, have to read the footnotes. That's the only people who do that. And so Jesus is saying here in this passage, listen, this is who you are. You're salt. You're supposed to bring out the God flavors of the world. Well, that means you have to A, intersect with the world, and B, admit that you're salt when you're in the world, and act accordingly. And sometimes that means there's going to be conflict when you're acting as salt in the world. Can we trust these versions of the church that are completely isolated from what God wants them to do? No. If, you, if we're in churches like that, should we trust that we're not going to get hurt? No, you shouldn't. You're going to get hurt. And can you trust being in a church where you show up and it's basically a social club for people who want to be called Christians but don't have anything to do to live out their faith on a regular basis? Is that gonna, That's actually going to damage your identity over time? Yes, of course it will. And is there a possibility that we would get hurt by stepping into the things that God has us to do in the world as we, as we embrace our identity as salt and light? Is it possible that we're going to get hurt doing that? Sure. But let's at least get hurt for doing the thing that God wants us to do, right? Let's at least put ourselves in danger because we're stepping after a person who gave their life up on a cross for the sake of the world because God so loved the world that he saved his own son, not because we wanted to be part of a better social club. Anybody? The church, Jesus is saying here, exists for the sake of the world. We are being called as a community of people to follow Jesus who is sent by the Father to save the world. That is the mission project of the God of the universe, to recreate, to reconcile and restore the whole world, everything that God created. When the church lives as a participant in God's mission, feeding off of the love and mercy and sacrifice that we have displayed in Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven people with spiritual gifts, called to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Then, then, we can trust that God's love is going to be experienced by the people who participate in those communities. When the church lives in isolation, or when the church lives in irrelevance, it has lost its saltiness and should be tossed in the garbage, according to our leader and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I have a three-minute theological nerd moment, okay? So if you're not a theological nerd, you are free to say, I don't know what he said there, and it really ruined the sermon for me, okay? Permission granted. For those of you who like this kind of thing, I had to bring it to you. There's a guy named Leslie Newbigin, fascinating guy. Spent the latter part of the 20th century, as, uh, or most of the 20th century, as a missionary from England to India, he was in 40 years a missionary from the church in England to India. He went back to England after serving those four decades, and he launched this conversation based on one question that has been hugely influential over the last 30 years. And the question was simply this, can the West be converted to Christ? After leaving his Western culture and living in India for 40 years, he came home and he said, oh my goodness, I need to now learn how to be a missionary 
to Western culture. Because so much has shifted here, and the assumptions that were here when I left don't exist anymore. He has launched a whole conversation, and anything that he wrote, I recommend to you. Here's a little quote from a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society that was written in 1989, so, you know, not last year, a while ago. Here's what, here's what Leslie Newbegin says about the church and its self-understanding. He says, it will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present and known and experienced. So churches where people have understood that they are a new creation in Christ and have started to step into that. And from which, those congregations, from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ. That's why we're always talking at Mill City about what it is that you're doing when you're not with us here. We think of you all as being sent every day into every context and industry and business and neighborhood and school and home as representatives and missionaries sent into those contexts. To unmask the illusions which have remained hidden and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But, he says, that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members. They exist as a sign, a light, if you will, an instrument, the means, the salt, and a foretaste, or I like the word appetizer better, as an appetizer of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. In the midst of a pluralist society, Newbegin is trying to say, the church should understand itself as a sign, as a, a, the means, a tool, an instrument, and as an appetizer an experience of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. And when it does that, when it embraces those things, then people can experience and give glory to God for the deeds and the things that they see happening in our context. Church is the people of God called by God to be the salt and light in the world for the sake of the world so that the world can experience God's kingdom breaking in and come to love the king of that kingdom. When we live as salt and light, we can trust the church to be everything that God created it to be. I have this idea that is probably not a very good one, to create a coffee table book that, that you could flip through, and it would have pictures of different congregations, not church buildings, but real people that make up churches. And it would have the church's name, and then it would just say one thing on each page that God did an amazing way through the church. And without this trying to sound like a rah-rah church moment, the reason I think we need this is to balance out all of the things that we know are really wrong with the church. So without being naive, let's also try to celebrate some of the things that could go in a coffee table book that said, when the people of God are salt and light, here's what that might look like. 
here's some stories of how that's happening. So I want to conclude my sermon today by sharing a couple of stories with you that sound like salt and light to me, and I'll invite the band to come up while I do that. Last week, Stephanie talked about the church that she grew up in, Redeemer Covenant Church in Brooklyn Center. And they went through some terrible hard things and had some really uh, awful leadership problems in their church. But today they have recovered from a lot of that and they have started to pull together an incredibly diverse group of church leaders and church lay people to work together across denominational backgrounds to help youth who are experiencing homeless in Brooklyn Center, which is an increasingly uh, big problem. And so they meet together every so often and they start to say, how can we pool our resources as the churches of Brooklyn Center to make sure that there are teenagers and even pre-teenagers who are living outside, living on the streets, have a place to go and a warm meal and know that someone cares about them. When churches come together to do stuff like that, and you talk to anybody who was helped by that, do you know how different the reputation of the church is for those people? Kids, you have a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old, or a 14-year-old who had a really hard home life and started living on the street, and a group of churches said, we know how to help you, we know how to love you, we can help put you in a house. What does that do to the life of those children? And not only to the life of the children, but to the people around who go, oh, so that's, that's what the church is doing. Let them see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Right down the street, there's a church that's kind of a sister church to us. Many of you know, Elam Church. They've been there for more than 125 years in northeast Minneapolis. When northeast Minneapolis was a suburb, they were here. For years now, they've been hosting a breakfast at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Any of you could go for people experiencing homelessness, building relationships with people there, benefiting from the gifts of the people in that community providing food, providing worship opportunities, and they've seen scores of those people come to know Christ and be baptized as a result of eating breakfast with them every Sunday morning for years. I have a good friend who helps lead a church called Flood in San Diego. I sent him an email this week. I said, tell me something that should go in the coffee table book. They, they worship in a school like we do, and he wrote me this story that said they recently um, baptized a young woman who has a, 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 ba a crazy background. She's the senior class president this year in the high school that they worship in. And the same day, they baptized one of her teachers who is um, part of the leadership of, or an advisor for student government. And this, this teacher said that she saw such transformation in the lives of the students who started being, coming to be part of the church that she had to check it out and some of the other people in a missional community focused on the school, invited her to worship with them, and they all came to know Christ and got baptized, which is amazing. And the woman, the teacher said, it was the evidence of God's work in the lives of her students that made her explore what it would be like to follow Christ with her life. Another church right down the street, friends of ours, Mercy Vineyard. I emailed Jeff this week. I said, Jeff, tell me one thing that we can celebrate about your church he said, one of the most encouraging stories in the last year is what we call our Special Buddies program. Basically, we recruit volunteers to work one-on-one -on -one with kids who have special needs and disabilities that keep them from participating in our regular kids program. 
This allows their parents to worship in a regular worship service, and it gives the kids a chance to receive special attention and the message that Jesus loves them as best as we can share. Isn't that amazing? A years ago, we started a program here where we decided that God was asking us to feed one kindergarten class of kids that didn't even have food on the weekends. Anybody heard of this before? It's called the Sheridan Story. The Sheridan Story next month will pass a budget as a nonprofit organization of over a million dollars because it has 90 partnerships of schools and churches across the Twin Cities. And there's going to be 90 schools that have churches engaged and other community organizations engaged in feeding kids who otherwise would have not enough food on the weekends. Mill City Church has created a space, I know because I've talked to many of you, it has created a space for people who've really had a hard time at church. And many of you have come here kind of bruised and beat up in some way, shape, or form. And you all have created a space for you all to feel like you could ask your questions and admit what's been hard, own your part of it, acknowledge that other people have done nasty stuff, and still you're here, trying to be the church with a bunch of flaws, with a lot of hope, and offering all your skills to see what could it be like for a church to try to love their community in the name of Jesus. And Mill City Church has this unbelievable reputation in Northeast Minneapolis now where you go to just about any leader in the community and say, would you want to partner with Mill City? And they would say yes. Because you all are doing what you know you need to do, which is hang in there, keep trying, invite God to heal you, acknowledge that we're flawed, and say, what if? What if we could be salt and light? What if we could let our good deeds shine in the world and people would know how amazing Jesus is? Not because we're amazing, but because God has given us grace and mercy and invited us to be ourselves and do the best we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I have, you can tell, I have so much passion about the church being what God's called it to be. And, and here's why. Because so much is at stake with this. This is not a social club. It's not a volunteer organization. It's not a nice nonprofit to have in your community if it's available. It is the primary means by which God intends to save the world. It is the primary means by which God intends to help people experience the kingdom of God and get to know who Jesus is. That's what's at stake for us. And so we have to keep trying, acknowledging when we've fallen in the ditch, offering forgiveness to each other and say, let's trust that by, by God's grace we can be salt and we can be light. Amen? Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are absolutely nothing without you. You are our leader and our guide and our savior. We can't do anything without you. In the places where our hearts are, are hurting God, we pray that you'd bring healing. In the place where we have apathy, or we know that we just don't care about this as much as you do. We pray that you'd bring a renewal of passion and energy. God, where we think our resources might be short, we pray that you increase our faith that no resource is unavailable to you. 
God, where, where we have participated in hurting other people, please help us to be aware so that we can ask for forgiveness. But God, more than anything, make your church what you intended to be so that other people will see what it's like to be in your kingdom and want to join by receiving your grace and your mercy and your unconditional love. Let people see that in us, Lord, that you might be named great in our communities, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. Send us out into those spaces. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.